0: Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us
1: at centrum.org. Hello and welcome to Crosscut Talks, a podcast replay of Crosscut's live interviews with the people who shape our world. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. In a time of newsroom layoffs, hot takes, fake news, and intense political polarization, it can feel difficult to find in-depth journalism that takes the time to explore underrepresented communities or tackle the world's toughest questions. But Fred de Sam Lazaro is someone who's been doing just that for over three decades. De Sam Lazaro is executive director of the under Stories Project, a journalism and teaching endeavor that documents the consequences of poverty all over the world and the work being done to address them. He's been a correspondent with the PBS NewsHour since 1985 and has reported from over 70 countries on topics such as labor, sex trafficking, public health, and immigration, and directed films from India and the Democratic Republic of Congo for the acclaimed documentary series Wide Angle. In conversation with Crosscut editor-at-Large Canute Berger, the award-winning journalist discusses his work and what his work has taught him about how to solve some of the biggest problems we face. This episode is sponsored by Alaska Airlines and was recorded at Salish Coast Elementary School in Port Townsend, Washington on February 3, 2020. It's part of the Communiversity Arts and Lectures series hosted by Centrum, a Port Townsend-based nonprofit arts organization. Oh, and a couple times during the conversation, DeSam Lazaro plays some of his video stories. If you'd like to watch them, go to crosscut.com slash talks and click on the episode page.
2: Fred,
3: come on up, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, there is uh, something to be said about weather when you live in Minnesota and the excuse to depart in February (laughs) is, uh, is a compelling it's a compelling urge that one gets, although I am just here. Uh, as of last week, I got back from Pakistan, and I cannot imagine uh, a place more different than where I was just a week ago and in many, many ways beyond geographic. I want to spend a little bit of time before we get into a conversation talking a little bit about the Undertold Stories project, what it is that we're trying to do, a little bit of show and tell, and then uh, talk about the state of journalism and a number of issues that are pressing in our world today. So our mission is pretty self-explanatory. We're a journalism project focused especially on the consequences of poverty and the work of change agents addressing those consequences. We work for highly respected news organizations, the chief of which you just um, saw referred to, And that's the PBS News Hour which consistently earns kudos as the most credible broadcast organization. It's been around for a long time and it is uh, the only place I could be. It is is probably the most credible broadcast organization universally, at least we like to think so from within the system, because credibility is about our most prized asset. I had an incident a few years ago in Indonesia where when we go out on these assignments we hire local fixtures to make our arrangements and the fixer in Jakarta kept introducing us to people as a crew from CBS News. And uh, by about the third time that this occurred I pulled him aside and I said look here it's, it's not CBS News it's PBS. And he said oh, yes, he said, I knew it was something BS. But this is about the only place that we could go with the topic areas um, that are really no-fly zones on television. Let me give you some examples. We've reported on female genital cutting, an issue that affects perhaps 100 million girls around the world. Labor trafficking. Tens of millions of men and women around the world are enslaved. Sex trafficking gets a little more attention, probably because it has the word sex in it, but trafficking for people's labor, slave labor, is a far more pervasive, pernicious problem. Sanitation. In India alone, hundreds of millions of people do not enjoy the dignity of an enclosed toilet obstetric fistula. Some of you may not know what this is. Basically it's an injury resulting from early marriage or sexual assault that renders its young victims incontinent for the rest of their life with with enormous stigma that that carries. And then menstrual hygiene. Menstrual hygiene. I want to play you a segment we did a couple of years ago. This is a pressing issue. Millions of girls miss school during their periods. In many cases, they are not schooled once they reach puberty. And here's an unlikely character who had an idea that um, I, I'm, I shouldn't steal his thunder. I'll just roll the video and we'll come back because this is the model of how we try to report on these issues.
4: First, an unlikely innovation from an unusual innovator. Special correspondent Fred de Sam Lazaro has the story of one man who has made it his mission to bring affordable hygiene products to women in India. It's part of our series, Agents for Change.
3: Arunachalam Muruganantham says he was a born tinkerer, obsessed with figuring out how things worked from toys to bicycles. He grew up in poverty after his father died young, dropped out of school, and became a welder, a lower middle class occupation in India.
5: To support my mother, I stopped my schooling.
3: But his natural curiosity apparently knew no bounds. Years later, it took him into a strictly taboo area in India's tradition bound society menstrual hygiene.
5: We are able to break the taboo and using it.
3: He's become known as India's Padman. Your goal is to have every woman in this country use sanitary pads if they need it. Yeah, it's a movement. A movement begun by a man who knew almost nothing about the female body until after he was married. You did not even know about menstruation at all. You had no idea what it was. Is that correct?
5: Yeah, I don't know when it is happening, how it is happening, even where it is happening. I don't know. And he says his wife, Shanti, wasn't particularly interested in discussing it. It's the greatest taboo. Wife never talked to husband, daughter never talked to mother.
3: That comes at a high cost in public health. Some experts say millions of girls across the developing world miss school during their periods and remain susceptible to infection throughout adulthood. Sanitary pads are widely advertised in India, but surveys suggest only about one in ten women actually uses them. At first, Muruganantham suggested them to his
5: wife. I asked simply, there is some products in the market, why you are not using that? See, instantly told, I also know about that, but we have to cut our family milk budget.
3: Milk budget?
5: Yeah, then I find it is a matter of affordability.
3: He could afford one package of sanitary pads and gave it to Shanti as a gift, partly to find out how they were made and why they had to be so expensive.
5: The white substance inside uses cotton. The raw material cost of the cotton is few pennies, but I bought the product for dollars. Then even being illiterate, I thought, why not try to make an affordable pad for my wife? Over the next few
3: years, he tried using local cotton to replicate the commercial pads. His wife suffered through early prototypes that didn't work and went back to using a rag then coaxed some female medical students to try his subsequent models figuring the future doctors would be less shy and he even began wearing a pad himself creating an artificial uterus and rubber bladder coaxing a local
5: butcher to provide the raw material and testing it out while he rode a bicycle I filled goat blood, animal blood in it. I tied on my hip. There is a tube connection to the napkin and the bladder. Shanti had had enough.
1: Everyone in the village was saying he had gone off his head. I was truly afraid. People said he had become like a vampire, that he was doing crazy things.
5: (laughs) She asked me to, I want to go to my parents' home for a few days. She never come back. And third month, I got a divorce notice from my wife. She filed for divorce? Yeah, I got a divorce notice. His mother who
3: lived in the home also left him, but his curiosity did not leave him. He called an American supplier posing as an industrialist in his hometown of Coimbatore, looking to branch out into feminine hygiene products.
5: Then I claimed myself, I'm a mill owner in Coimbatore, please send some sample. The samples arrived and one day when he wasn't home, his dog tore into them. He took the courier cover, she scratches it, oh my God, I saw a secret the fiber, you can see the fiber. So the dog opened this for you?
3: Opened it, it scratches with the anger. It was cellulose, he discovered, that when scratched vigorously becomes sponge-like and highly absorbent. It took two years to perfect a machine to fluff up the cellulose, he said, a modified food blender
5: in which the blades have to be angled just so. It's got a prestigious award from Indian Institute of Technology. That's the best innovation. It's simple, easily replicated
3: and can be modified to work without electricity, he says. The pads can be made and sold for a fraction of the commercial varieties. This is the model for how Muruganantham would like to see his product distributed. Thousands of small factories run by groups of women producing these sanitary pads at very low cost and selling them directly to women. More than 4,000 small factories have started making his sanitary pads across India, each with its own local branding and language. Mala, is meaning of flower. He gets no royalties from any of this. His workshop does sell the machines, enough to earn him a modest living. But nothing is patented. He wants others to copy or even improve the machine and methods.
5: The world is shortage of solution providers. Everybody, they want to be in the Forbes list, under two Everybody wants to be in the Forbes list. Forbes list. Nobody wants to be a solution provider. In the end, Shanti decided
3: her husband was a solution provider. She returned after a five-year separation. Somewhat sheepishly, she
1: admits. They had his interview on TV that he had discovered sanitary napkins. So I called him, and then I came back. He was angry. I told him I did not want to get in his way. That's why I stepped aside. Now, we are happy. Happy for what
3: her husband's work may mean for young girls like their eight-year-old daughter, Preeti Sri,
5: The strongest creature created by God in this world. Not the tiger, not the elephant, not the lion, the women.
3: If any man doubts this, he says, see how long you can endure a sanitary pad in your daily routine. For the PBS NewsHour, this is Fred de Sam Lazaro in Coimbatore, India. So that is an example, one of my favorites, uh, as you might imagine of our approach, the approach we try to tell these stories, um, strong character-driven narratives of change-makers. Our series is called Agents for Change. And uh, that is probably the only way you're gonna draw eyeballs to to the screen, is is with good stories based on a very simple idea. You know, we just always love, from our childhood, to be told a nice story and Our goal is to bring these into the classroom. What we've done is created a very slick new website that pulls together in one accessible space all the stories we've done on these issues, make them easily accessible for instructors to instructors, mostly in the undergraduate space. We have more than 300 segments on the site so far and more being loaded all the time. Carefully Categorized, cataloged by, by topic, and we are piloting a series of learning modules, which will essentially build on specific stories, and these are going to be comprehensive, peer-reviewed study guides, presented in a turnkey fashion to professors. They're built around stories, as I mentioned. This is the sample of one, uh, and it's built around a story we did in China about Ma Jun, who began this outstanding organization that has single-handedly cleaned up a lot of pollution across that country and very artfully given the system of governance that China has. Who is our audience? For starters, it is something known as the Ashoka Changemakers Campus Consortium, some 50 university campuses across North America. I figure if I can get 25 courses to adopt learning module, we've reached a lot of young people at a very critical phase of their vocational formation. Even if our stories don't directly inform their vocations, we've informed them. This is a captive, coerced audience in a classroom, and I don't mind that. Now why do we think that this approach will be impactful in the academic space? I can cite you innumerable examples of people who've responded expansively to stories or characters we've profiled. My favorite impact story is probably this one, following a, series, a short series of reports about garment workers in Bangladesh. I can guarantee most of us are wearing garments made in Bangladesh here. There are thousands of factories. And one of them, you might recall a few years ago, collapsed and killed a number of young women, just like Jasma Akhtar. She survived under the rubble for about two days before she was rescued, but endured, even a year later, some serious back injuries, she couldn't get back to work. And the tenor of most of the interview is reflected in this picture. But toward the end of the interview, I asked her, this is a 19-year-old. And I was, I am the father of daughters. They were teenagers at the time. And I said, you know, what what did you do? What was the most fun part of your job? And all of a sudden, with this wry smile, she said, you know, I used to get curious about where these shirts went when they left this factory. So I started to scribble my phone number on a little piece of paper and slip them into the pockets, (laughs) saying, if you like this shirt, call me. (laughs) And she got two phone calls back before the building collapsed. But there is a man named Andy Lauer, an impact investor, who was so moved, I found out just randomly and a couple of years later, so moved by this woman that he, has, he set up a whole line of clothing having built a fair-wage factory in neighboring India. It's called, it's called Vision Wear. I am actually modeling a Vision shirt And this is a man who did this based on his reaction to this story. And I'm convinced that if adults, and there are many examples like this, if adults can be moved to action, what might we do with the younger energetic, idealistic generation, the younger demographic? Briefly, what we do, about 22 short documentaries Uh, in any given year, like last year, on a wide variety of topics. And last year we uh, covered a wide swath of geography, the Navajo Nation, East Africa, South Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Central America, and Wisconsin. (laughs) Wisconsin? (laughs) Well, on that note, I'm going to show you what we did in Wisconsin, and then after that we can get into our conversation. Hey, Judy.
4: A unique program started in Wisconsin helps to build bridges between farm employers and migrant employees. Special correspondent Fred DeSam Lazaro begins our report in the Mexican state of Veracruz. It's part of Fred's series, Agents for Change.
3: They are hard to distinguish from thousands of Americans who meet up in Mexico, <inaudible> headed to its beach resorts, and a respite from winter. But this group of Wisconsin dairy farmers had a very different destination as they headed inland and up steep gravel mountain roads. The views are breathtaking, but these are places where tourists rarely go and where locals say it's hard to stay and earn a living. It's become an annual ritual for the Midwesterners, getting together with families their Mexican employees left behind as they traveled north to find work. Their earnings sustain the families here in Mexico, even if the breadwinners themselves, most of them undocumented in the U.S., could not afford the cost or risk of a quick visit home. John Rosenau was on his ninth trip in recent years visiting the families of his 10 Mexican workers. First stop, the parents of Marco Rosales.
4: Is there anything you want us to tell Marco?
1: Tell him that we are well and tell him to behave.
4: Does he mostly behave? Marco behaves. Marco at times works 12 hours a day, and uh, right now he's working with 10 below.
3: On a frigid early January morning, I got to see Marco's routine, which begins at the crack of dawn in the milking parlor. We run this 24 hours a day in here. How many Uh, gallons of milk come out of this place? Like today, uh, we'll we'll ship probably 5,000 gallons. Families like Rosenau's, he's fifth generation on this farm, helped give Wisconsin the bragging rights as America's dairyland. But the unrelenting routine of milking, birthing, feeding, and cleaning is one Rosenau says Americans long ago stopped wanting to do. For years, Rosenau says he's tried to recruit for jobs that pay between thirty-two dollars and $42,000 a year, plus on-farm housing if needed.
4: I've gone to... Uh farm supply stores, uh, locally, asking people that work there. I never got a response, ever. Uh, And you would
3: pay more than these big department stores?
4: Yes. And so I don't understand why Americans don't do it, but they they don't.
3: About 20 years ago, left with no choice, he says, he hired a Mexican immigrant he found through a farm magazine ad.
4: Came and milked 54 days straight. Uh, Here was somebody that worked as hard as I do wow, this is the answer to my biggest, biggest problem that I
3: had was labor. Migrant workers may have solved the labor problem for some farmers here, but also revealed a new one. Pull it up to the top. Communication. So a county extension agent asked Sean Duvall, the local high school Spanish teacher, to start language classes.
4: I thought, well, pfft. They're not going to learn enough Spanish. They're not going to learn about the culture or why people do what they do in a 20-hour Spanish class. So I thought, well, let's do something more.
3: She and Rosenau founded a nonprofit called Puentes Bridges, intended to offer language immersion trips to Mexico, Spanish lessons for the dairy owners, English for their workers, as well as a dairy technician training program, trying to help two very different cultures better understand each other.
4: It's politically a conservative area, but all of a sudden there's this presence of people who don't share your culture and they needed somebody who knew something. And I didn't know that much, but I knew more than they did.
3: Today Wisconsin's dairy industry says a majority of workers are immigrants, an arrangement that endures despite the rancorous debate around immigration. For their part, the immigrants keep a low profile. Roberto Tecpile, who's 39, agreed to share his story. In the 20 years he's been in the U.S., he's returned home just four times, he says. Returning to the U.S. is treacherous and expensive. I walked two days and two nights. Did you have to pay people to get here? Yes. The trafficker's fee was $10,000. Thirty-two-year-old Armando Tecpile, who's not related to Roberto, endured the same expensive ordeal, driven, he says, by dreams of earning enough to build a comfortable home in his village.
0: My house, I thank God, it's already three floors and complete concrete. It's not finished yet. still in construction, but all the outside is done.
3: Back in Mexico, Armando's home was the next stop for his boss.
2: I'm really grateful Armando found you as a place to work, because it's hard to find a good job.
3: Here and everywhere they visited, the Wisconsin visitors found expressions of appreciation and warm hospitality. But just beneath the smiles, in many cases, lurked the pain of long separation for the host families. After her guests left, Armando's wife, Lourdes Ramos, told me she'd pleaded with her husband not to go to the U.S., to stay home with their sons, now 10 and 5.
5: I said, I'm not asking you for
2: anything. I'm not asking you for money. We don't need such a big house if it's just two of us and the two boys. And really, it's nicer to have a smaller place.
3: She fears they'll wind up like Roberto's family, who've endured his absence over much of the past two decades. (laughs) Rosenau talked with Roberto's father about the new prosperity, visible across villages here in new construction and in small enterprises many families have started. But his wife and mother reflected on the price they've paid, particularly the children. Aaron is their middle child. I miss my papa.
5: I love him a lot.
3: When was the last time you saw your
1: papa? I
5: was five years old. He used to carry me, and we used to go to see my grandma far away. His younger
3: sister, Megan, was barely a month old when her father left.
0: We miss him. We really do miss him. But it
3: is Roberto and Veronica's 15 year old son, who was away when we visited, who most worries his mother.
2: He just wants to go and work with his dad, and is waiting to be able to do that. I'm not going to let my son go because the border is very dangerous.
3: Whether she'll prevail against the strong tug of economic opportunity up north is a big question. A generation ago, her mother-in-law remembers pleading similarly with Roberto and his brothers. All four of them remain in the United States. For the PBS Newshour, this is Fred de Sam Lazaro in Zongalica, Mexico.
4: What a wonderful report. Fred's reporting is a partnership with the Undertold Stories Project at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota.
2: Um, wow. <laughs> the, those are both amazing episodes. And, and, and um, I want to ask you about the menstruation one. Where did that story come from for you? I mean, I, how did you get onto to that story?
3: It uh, is not, you know, depending on what you read, it's, it's an old story, or it's a told story, <laughs> but it was undertold on television. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times had had this story, and there are certain practical considerations when you work in the broadcast media. The most notable for us is that we typically broadcast during the dinner hour, and so there are some... S- Some topic areas that are just simply off limits, and I have a a real sales job to do to convince people that it's not going to be graphic, and and um, and so I can't claim to have you know turned over a rock that no one else had, but I'm very proud of the fact that we brought this story to television.
2: Yeah, Uh, the second episode that you showed, or, or uh, gets into the t- topic of immigration, which I'd like to talk to you about. Sure. And, um, I mean, it's striking in, in a number of ways. One is you have these conservative Wisconsin dairy farmers from presumably Trump country, um, and but there's also this relationship building and that kind of thing. What, what did you take away from that story?
3: You know, one of the most important things about that story, I think, is that it conveys a slice of real life that is real life beyond the chattering that you hear on the 24-hour talk channels. This is how it actually unfolds. Um, There is a symbiotic relationship, and here is a group of people that want to add a moral dimension to it uh, and, and have all the right... Motivations. It is, of course, controversial. We got some, some interesting feedback, some very critical feedback about enabling this or glorifying uh, or supporting by just broadcasting this story. Uh, people who are who are enabling illegal immigration. But for me, the most powerful aspect of the story, which had to be trimmed, unfortunately, because there was some, we, we did dive into this, the more controversial issues. But this is how it plays out. I mean, this is this is an industry, America's dairy land would not be were it not for migrant labor, which accounts for about 60% of all the workers. And that is a fact of life that plays out in many quotidian ways. One of the farmers that we interviewed talked about being called once by the local sheriff's office saying that they'd pulled over a car with four of his workers in it and not one of them had a license, a driver's license, and could he come and pick the car up? And he went, and he did, and that was the end of the story. The, uh, the fine for driving without a license was mailed to his house, and, these, and life went on. A uh, sort of a don't ask don't tell arrangement that I suspect is informed by what supports the larger economy there so the real I mean this is how you know the reality unfolds um, when you you know when you get beyond the debate about immigration I mean why what drives it what imperatives are there
2: and yeah, one of the things that's striking I've done reporting around Washington State in apple orchards and wheat farms and various, various things. And particularly in eastern Washington, there's a tremendous reliance on migrant labor. And uh, a lot of the growers over there have improved housing. Some of them run private health clinics at their packing plants. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you come over on the west side of the mountains into the Seattle area, and you have all these tech companies that need workers from India, workers from South Asia, um, visa programs, and and whatnot. And I'm just struck if you have conservative rural farmers who want uh, consistency and um, they want immigration reform, and you have these big, powerful tech companies that want maybe a slightly different version uh, but still the same thing they want immigration reform it's such a powerful economic argument to get the system right how come do you think we can't get it done
3: how come we can't get it done you're asking me this (laughs) <laughs> yeah. but but as, what do you? As I'm fond you... of saying, you know, I'm from <laughs> Bangalore. What yeah. the hell do I know? <laughs> and I'm not a tech worker. Um, no, i mean Yeah, you, I don't expect you to solve it, but I wondered. We. I mean, uh, that's the paradox, you know. You know, in our political system and discourse, it all depends on 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 where you're campaigning, and there are pockets, uh, certainly, of what you call Trump country where. There's decided anger um, and 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 a vagueness about where that's directed, I think, and uh, I dare say that certain kinds of people um, you know are more easily vilified than than other kinds of people, and um, that might inform some of it. but when push to shove comes, you know life needs to go on in places like. Buffalo County, Wisconsin. You
2: mentioned uh, we chatted a little earlier and you mentioned something about um, reform for Liberians in this country and I wonder if you could mention that
3: as part of this phenomenon. Right, we were talking about if you happen to be visiting this country and something happens in your country that uh, is a major event, an earthquake, such as happened in Nepal, for example, or Central America, um, El Salvador, you're allowed to continue living in the United States and it's called temporary protected status. And we in Minnesota have a large population of people from Liberia who have TPS because of the unrest and the civil war that occurred in that country gosh, 20 years ago, and it's barely recovered from it. Well, the Trump administration announced a couple of years ago that they were going to let the TPS expire for this population, and and there was a a great deal of concern in the local Liberian community, and uh, through the magic of wheeling and dealing in Washington, there was a bill that the president signed very recently, into which was snuck a special exception to TPS for the Liberian population. Uh, you don't hear a lot about that happening. And it was done very, very quietly. And it was, it's absolutely counter to the narrative we've been hearing out of this administration. But the Liberians in Minnesota, instead of facing deportation uh, and the sunset of their TPS status, are now on a path to legalization, which is unheard of and, uh, and untold. <laughs> For yeah. the most part. Yeah, that's really interesting.
2: It's, <clears throat> it's, uh, there still is an element
3: of who you know. Absolutely. And even in the business of, of agricultural labor, there are certain, certain kinds of farmers. I don't know exactly what, uh, you, what sectors of agriculture uh, these are, but there are parts of the United States in which farmers are allowed temporary visas from Mexico um, to employ workers who go back and forth. And it's a legal um, system, but that does not exist for dairy farming. Mm. Their lobby is probably less powerful than the others.
2: That's interesting. Um, You're an immigrant. Your family immigrated. Can you tell us a little bit about your story, your immigration story, and your...
3: um, what would be interesting about it. I, I accompanied my, my mother as an immigrant to this country. She was she thought she was going to retire and didn't at the time. But, um, she was trained as a physician, went on to sit for her boards and became a doctor and uh, I wound up always wanting to be a journalist and, And this was a paradise for anyone aspiring to be a journalist. I can't tell you how exceptional our First Amendment is in terms of what it affords journalism now. We're seeing a huge distortion and evolution of that in our modern era, some of it wrought by technology. But even compared to working in the British system, the protections afforded uh, journalists in this country are... The gold standard. I always wanted to be a journalist, and um, and as an immigrant, I'm very close to issues related to immigration. I, you know, I love stories like the one that we just saw. Uh, I love doing um, stories from the subcontinent and and other parts of the developing world because I think, you know, so much of what you bring to the table is your you know composite life experience, and I can. I can share stories. I hope that resonate with people that make the foreign less foreign, which is what you know. I think one should strive to do. So that's my immigration story.
2: How did you? How did that beat develop? I mean, I can't. Did did an editor come to you and say, "We we want you to travel <laughs> to seventy countries
3: around the world, it's, report on poverty?" And... It's it's pure survival strategy. I wish I could say you know I sat down <laughs> and envisioned this. It looks that way in the rearview mirror. Basically, um, I started to, to do more in international reporting from the non-tourist parts of the world, from the undertold parts of the world, as an early adopter of um, digital technology and small cameras. This kind of journalism had two big slams against it. one. It was perceived as being very foreign, and two, it was very expensive, and technology took care of the expense bit and made it a lot more affordable leaving the challenge to just make it relevant we still have to uh, struggle for shelf space on the news hour especially during election years such as the one that we're living through right now and if you're not doing elections politics or impeachment you are on the sidelines right about now and so basically this this evolved and it it occurred to me that this kind of video is a very compelling teaching tool and in, in thinking about it more deeply given that technology had made it possible the thought evolved about why not bring this together on a university campus and and spread the word our media are changing our habits are changing The way we get informed is changing drastically, and I don't aspire to a mass audience anymore if I can target my audience to be uh, in a classroom of 20 young people. That to me is as satisfying as a mass media audience. We love the mass media audience, no question about it, but we are living in an in an age where very quickly platforms will be irrelevant. You know, I talk to large numbers of young people who never watch television, for example, and all of us are going to a phase where we're not we're not watching anything that's scheduled for us, we're scheduling it for ourselves. And so amid all of this change, uh, what has to endure is the storytelling and getting you know, these stories in front of eyeballs. So that's that's the way that we hope to do it at the Untold Stories project.
1: Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Alaska flies to over 115 destinations worldwide, with an average of 1,200 daily flights across the United States, Mexico, Canada, and Costa Rica. Every Alaska flight has high-speed Wi-Fi, free chat, free movies, a rotating seasonal menu, and the highest-rated customer experience of any North American airline. Alaska also tops the charts in environmental sustainability, having been ranked the most fuel-efficient U.S. airline for seven years running. It's the highest-rated U.S. airline on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, and it helps passengers offset the carbon impact of every trip they take. Learn more, and book your next trip at alaskaair.com. Um,
2: I'm just thinking about the, the kind of arc of your career. Um, I'm curious about some of the first stories you did and whether there's, whether there's a trend within, within that 30 plus years of what you started covering or what was emphasized in the beginning as opposed to where it is now? In other words, and, and what, is, what is not just that learning curve, but also that sense of how those
3: issues have come to the surface or gone away? Right, I mean stories, I mean when I began doing this, and I didn't always do international work, I did a lot of work domestically as well, uh, for a spell, but around the mid '90s, the G-Whiz stories were about accent training courses in Bangalore to to, um, to train people who look like me to sound like like you on the phone, and the whole call center industry was starting. For for example, at the time, globalization was you know was upon us, and uh, and now that's just so so second nature. Um, so, commonplace, there are no call centers left in India now <clears throat> that pretend that they're in in America. They, they, uh, this is where a lot of back office work is to, is being done nowadays. So you know we've basically gone along, you know with the trends and tried to be trying to report on what's new. but i I dare say that you know we've seen this this growing inequity in the world. And, and so our focus at the Untold Stories Project is being, has been to, to find the stories of people who, who are not participating in the good times, if that's what we're living through anywhere in the world. And everywhere you go, um, especially in the subcontinent, you're seeing huge inequity. Um, you're seeing a number of problems in, in Africa as well. And that's the unmet or the undertold stories that's where we're going and the goal has always been it's a pretty fundamental journalistic instinct to go after stories that you know that are not told widely and and so our niche is in the poverty space and and um, you know with social entrepreneurs and social innovators and In terms of evolution, I think one of the concerns that has grown in recent times is about what we might call the the aid industrial complex. Humanitarian aid is a massive industry, and there are a lot of people in the business who uh, inflate their... You know, their impact when they talk to you and it calls for a lot more diligence where once in the beginning these were cute stories.
2: Yeah, how, how does the aid industrial complex work? What are some examples of, I mean obviously aid, NGOs, organizations are there to help governments um, but is there another agenda, or is there another... How, do, how does that play out? Unless,
3: you know, un- unlike so many other endeavors, this is a business in which you are theoretically working to put yourself out of business. Okay. Like with, what, disease ratification? For example, malaria. Okay. Now, there are very few places in the world where malaria is, should be a real problem. Um, it's been eliminated in most places, but there are tiny pieces of land, like on the Cam- Cambodia in Western Cambodia, for example, where there is the danger emerging of a multi-drug-resistant parasite, and, and um, the world hangs by a thread with one compound that can deal with this organism. It's, it's a very precarious situation. You talk to people who are experts, academic experts, who will say, we can, we can put malaria into history if we really wanted to. But you have to have Multilateral agreements with um, several countries, and a coordinated effort and that 's a political non starter so today, for example, you have more people in Thailand fighting malaria than have it <laughs> by a large margin because uh, that is their livelihood that 's what they are trained to do and you know if you 're a hammer, everything looks like a nail i mean you, um, this is what you basically are trained to do. So that's one aspect of of the way this works. And, 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 uh, and there are innumerable other examples of just outright fraud, which uh, you have to watch out for. Um, and there are one or two instances, I dare say, from our library of work where, where um, it wasn't what they said it was, and I didn't have the resources to fully, um, to fully vet these. Or they weren't evident at the time, for example. So it's becoming a complex business in many ways.
2: Well, I'm interested in this issue of the difficulty of well-meaning people trying to solve a problem. In other words, if you, you, you tell the un, untold or little told story, people want to jump on it and do something about it with resources. And you, I think there's, this, there's a conflict between the sort of top-down approach, um, which some Western organizations have, for example, and the bottom-up approach, the, the local. Right. And you've seen, I think, some of that, the contrast between. Um, right. That. One of Tell the, us about that.
3: One of the most profound things that I've ever heard was from a man named Don Hopkins, who runs the medical program for the Carter Center. This is former President Carter's um, nonprofit, which is out of Emory University in Atlanta. And they. They uh, have been very focused on building democracy on on the one hand and tackling neglected tropical diseases on the other. And one of the things that Dr. Hopkins said to me, he said that every one of us, no matter where we are and who we are, have a sixth sense for condescension. We know when we're being condescended to, and there's a lot of that in humanitarian aid. And the president, in an interview with us, elaborated on how they've tried to take the collaborative approach to dealing with this, you know, with the problems that they're tackling. So one of the big pushes for the Carter Center is a disease called guinea worm, which is a nasty parasite that gets into the body through your skin. Uh, the larvae can also come into your body when by ingesting you know, contaminated water. And grows into a very long worm that then has to be extricated from your body. It's extremely painful, it's, it's excruciating, and it's easily eradicated with a concerted effort. And in fact, the number of cases was in the hundreds of thousands when President Carter first launched this campaign in the 80s. Hundreds of thousands of cases in dozens of countries. It's down to 50-some cases in two or three countries today, <laughs> and it's it's this close to being number two to smallpox for being you know, a disease eradicated from the planet, and it's very simple. You just control where these larvae are and eliminate them. Well, President Carter says when we began, you know, the, the first instinct is we know what we can do with these. You know, you know, with these open ponds, which serve as the source of water for these very remote villages in South Sudan, for example. And so they would go in and say, you know what, we would like to spray this pond to kill the larvae. And the community says, I have no idea who you are, I have no reason to trust you, and this pond is the source of life in our community, and we cannot afford to take the risk. And so, I mean, it took a, a concerted effort to understand where the community was coming from, says President Carter, and, and adopting even their theology, if you will, to say, you know, to go and talk to the hierarchy in the village and say, we know this is the source of life in your community, but well, we have good intelligence that there is a curse that has come on this, this pond. Could we work together to tackle this, you know, this, this curse? And it is, it, it is something as ridiculously facile as that, uh, as that sounds, that nonetheless conveys a sense of respect and collaboration that's, that uh, is not top-down and that works.
2: And there are examples of when this hasn't worked, uh, the top-down approach. Or is there a, a counterexample to that, the sort of what not to do?
3: Uh, I imagine that, that that is, in many ways, the standard. I mean, there are, there, there are all manner of dams that have been built around the world. The one that stands out in my mind is in, is in Haiti, which is bone dry right now, of, of massive infrastructure projects that seemed fine, but that are going... you know don't deliver any water or power. Um, the one that stands out in my mind is, 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 is the water sector where you will typically have you know, a big ribbon cutting ceremony, a water you know, facility, a water pipe has been installed, a water um, tap has been installed for the community, and within 30 days something goes wrong with the mechanism and nobody owns it and nobody knows how to fix it and it's gone away. And, uh, and so now there is a little more thinking about partnering with communities so that um, you sometimes have people pay for it people own it um, and have a committee set up in, in, the, uh, in the local community to manage these facilities have adequate training uh, there is a lot of parachute kind of you know, aid that comes in from consultants and um, doesn't really go anywhere.
2: The um, There's a, a gentleman named Edgar Villanueva that I interviewed recently who's written this book called Decolonizing Wealth, and he's he works in philanthropy, and he's consulted for big corporations, Amazon, the Gates Foundation, and his critique is that our whole charity system um, is often driven by the same forces and organizations that generated the income inequality in the first place. That you have these, um, you have essentially a very small elite group of people deciding how these resources will right. be
3: used. Yeah. I think, you know, and I, I'm obviously no expert on this, but I suspect that some of this is a learning curve that everybody has to ascend. You know, these are people who, who mean well, uh, who pledge enormous sums of money to correct a problem because they think that they can have an impact. There are people... There's another book called Winners Take All by Anand Girdar das about this phenomenon of very, very wealthy people deciding that they... or feeling that they can solve... that they know the answers to the world's problems and not seeing that they themselves are the problem. This is in the mind of you know, the author of this book. But somewhere I suspect, you know, the imperative is good intentions to begin with. You know, uh, I've got to believe that.
2: I know you've done a lot of uh, reporting on and um, uh, talking with faith-based based organizations, and I'm wondering where you sort of see them. I mean, um, well, certainly here in the Pacific Northwest, we're we're relatively secular compared to the rest of the country. We're a, a, a what they call a, a center of nuns, mm-hmm. um, people who don't belong to any organized religion, that kind right. of thing. Right. You know, what should we think about faith-based organizations and supporting them?
3: I've done a lot of reporting of faith-based social enterprises and initiatives, and most of them are very, very authentic uh, in, I mean, the imperative is not uh, profit or survival, but just pure service in many respects. Um, but generally, the faith-based space takes two paths. One is, that, one is what you might see in the old line, if we're talking about Christian faith-based organizations, the old line churches, you know, Lutheran World Federation, Catholic Relief Services, and World Vision, who are enormous in their scope and in their footprint and what they do in the world, in everything from disasters relief to public health initiatives. There is also an evangelical side um, which doesn't hide the fact that, uh, that they are there to heal the sick but also save their souls, and it's a headcount in many respects, and, and that goes Around the map, but they they are prominent, and uh, and, and play a very big role, uh, many times on, uh, in contracts with the uh, with the government, to because they have the means, they have the expertise, and they uh, they do enormous amounts of work, and individually, I mean, some of the most impressive people I've met are individual priests, you know, a Jesuit that I met in Zambia who is a Louisiana native and he's he's promoted organic agriculture and influenced the government for years there. Um, a Loreto nun from Ireland who's lived most of her life in Calcutta in India and revolutionized education in that city and now in that province by by bringing kids off the street into very elite schools, for example. So uh, you meet some extraordinary individuals in this, in this job. It's one of the biggest thrills for me.
2: I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, what, what people tell you about the Gates Foundation, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We have the largest foundation in the world,
3: located here in the Seattle area, anyway. I'm aware. Um... <laughs> I don't, um, they have such an enormous footprint in so many areas, and at times it's controversial. My, my information is also uh, possibly dated, but every now and again I'll, you know, I'll get somebody call me and say, you ought to do something about what the Gates Foundation is doing, and blah, 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 blah. The most controversial... Um, initiative that they had, and this is a few years ago during the height of the HIV epidemic, or at least the problem that we were worried about in in South Asia and in India, a very controversial initiative was the Gates Foundation's distribution of funding of the distribution of condoms widely in the sex industry in India. And what what people who are working to eradicate trafficking which is that which underlines and underpins this whole sex trade what the activists there would say is what the Gates Foundation was doing is enabling the industry is partnering and therefore therefore legitimizing the pimps if you will and that was very controversial but it was driven by what you know what the um, you know what the science was saying we ought to be doing at the time i I am not um, really qualified to talk about them because I don't encounter them as much and i uh, you know I'm much more of a trench level story finder right. I don't deal a lot with what they, they do but this is this is typically what you hear but the fact is that just in theory people are concerned that there is so much money and therefore so much influence um, Invested or that exists in a private organization. I've seen that uh, concern. I've, I've seen people trying to address that. There's an organization called Partners in Health, which some of you might have heard about, run by Paul Farmer, and, and they've worked extensively in Haiti, for example. Haiti got something like $6 billion in, in aid pledges after the earthquake, and 95% of that was... Was given to organizations that worked outside and around any kind of government oversight. There was no coordination, and uh, and there was really very very minimal impact from all of that money. Haiti is in worse shape, as bad a shape as it's ever been. Okay, with all of that aid, Partners in Health, uh, which has been there for a long time, built just built a massive. <clears throat> Absolutely world class hospital in, in Mirabalais in the Central Plains, in which they have decided, in principle, to transfer the title of the running of this hospital to this government that nobody likes. And what they say is only a government can, if you think healthcare is a right, or healthcare, yeah, healthcare is a right, only a government can guarantee a basic human right. And we have to work to build build a government. We, there's no working. There's no way you can work around it. And I think more enlightened organizations are starting to partner with governments to say we cannot do an end run around government governments that are perceived as being dysfunctional, non-functional, corrupt, and in many cases with good, you know, foundation. But you have to fix that problem if you're gonna have a sustainable long-term solution. You can't work in the short cycle. And that's the criticism of many NGOs, as they work to please their funders and uh, to sustain themselves more than anything else. And that does not include working with the government to sustain, you know, long-term the uh, solutions that they're trying to do.
2: I know that your approach has been to tell great stories, <laughs> stories that people haven't heard before and get get uh, make them compelling enough that you get attention. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, what what you observe about the American psyche. We seem to be going through a period of isolationism or Uh, withdrawal from certain things you see of course you see this in other some other countries as well in Europe Um, and um, what what do you think about that what do you how does that inform um, what
3: you do or what you think ought to happen um journalistically speaking I mean I, I in my work, I try to find stories such as the one we just shared um, that, that are a slice of real life as it plays out. Um, personally, I try and avoid the, uh, the chattering channels because it can get very, very toxic. And my biggest worry is, is the direction in which you know um, we're being influenced, the direction of media organizations, especially the ones, uh, and I could name them, Fox News, MSNBC, um, CNN, for example, these are organizations which have spectacular people working in them, some of them are very honorable people, and I don't mean to demean their work in any way, but the very business model of of these channels um, calls for an, an enormous belly to be filled twenty four seven and the only way i 'm going to get you to keep watching me is if I ratchet it up and you the only way you ratchet it up is you increase the em, emotional quotient to this and so you 're riling people up increasingly indignant uh, in an increasingly indignant tones, and that ultimately gets just really, really toxic. And f- far cry from the model that the PBS News Hour has, which is the news breaks during the day. You have time to deliberate uh, and digest and then distill it into an hour digest. We, we put the breaking stuff online. But by the end of the day, as happened during Walter Cronkite's time, we have a digest of news that is at least deliberated about and. and uh, and distilled over a period of time, it's not knee-jerk, and uh, and it's more thoughtful, I dare say. So I'm worried about that.
2: With your travels overseas, what what is what what are the misconceptions that people have about the United States? Oh goodness! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is are, are there things that you come across in terms of? general attitudes or, or beliefs that that we should be dispelling the other way
3: you know you can go to places where you'll see a lot of sloganeering and anti-american you know graffiti You know, depending on on what's happening uh... in places um, i was in pakistan during the height of the afghan war for example and there's a lot of that but at a personal level um, people don't don't um, don't harbor a lot of hostile intent, with the exception of what we witnessed in the Middle East during you know, the conflagration surrounding Iraq, the, the kidnapping. And, and so what you're dealing with in those instances is pure banditry, with most expe- exceptions. These are people looking to ransom, to capture people for ransom, uh, rather than and ideological. Most of the foot soldiers in these movements are not very educated young men uh, who have been given an occupation and marching orders in many ways. Interpersonally, people are not hostile to Americans. I dare say universally and to this day, people are very... Um, I, I deeply admire this country or what it stands for, for sure. And uh, in many cases with good reason. I mean, this is... Uh, this is a country that has a, a large footprint in the humanitarian sector, which is where I hang out a lot. Uh, the PEPFAR program that was that was initiated by uh, President George W. Bush has saved millions of lives of people who would have perished from HIV, uh, for example. That's a testament to you know what people see as the spirit of, you know, of America—a generous one with all its warts and all its flaws and all its texture. At the end of the day, people want to come to America, or they still do, and that says something. Um, I'm talking about the image of this country in many places, and in many cases, they're driven by by despair. Um, I, I don't mean to imply that people want to... Let me back up. I think most people want to bloom where they're planted. And I I speak especially uh, about places in Central America, because I've witnessed the migration, for example, from El Salvador in particular. People are not flocking to the United States because um, there is a financial or economic carrot hanging in front of them They are fleeing out of fear um, for their safety. They are fleeing out of um, the fact that they don't have an economic means, uh, a means of sustaining themselves because of the violence that's been wrought in their countries, which is quite different from the motivation that would have brought my mother to this country. She wanted a better future for her son. Everybody does that. So the point being that there are two there are two tracks that drive migration to the United States. Uh, the refugee one and the economic migrant uh, path. Um,
2: could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? You, I know you were in India and Pakistan recently. I, um, I'm
3: working on a... Uh, what were we doing in India? We're doing a series on water. <laughs> Um, and that, in, that is we've had one piece go on it's from the city of Chennai in India which has chronic, chronic problems with with um, with water they go from epic drought one season to epic floods the next and it's it is entirely avoidable in many ways. I mean, so many of these, these these epic problems, not the epic drought and the epic flooding. The epic floods are because the city has been so built up and the ancient systems of draining water have, have disappeared, for example. Uh, Chennai gets more rain than London and Seattle combined and still runs out of water. It had a day zero last year. They had to bring water in by train. And their response, it's on the coast, is to desalinate. Um, And so our story was, you don't need to desalinate. this is not Israel, this is not Saudi Arabia, this is Chennai, and you ought to, for example, collect rainwater, that'll solve a lot of the problems, and renew your storage mechanisms and do some dredging, that was one story. Another story about water up in the Himalayas, where there's a community working to create ice stupas, uh, artificial glaciers to uh, tide them through the dry months, um, and I'm always looking to pick up new stories about um, issues that we we like to cover. Um, I run on a shoestring budget; <laughs> we're a nonprofit, and so we try to um, to put as many stories in the in the basket as we can from from a trip to amortize the cost of it and one of the pieces we're doing that I think is going to be very compelling is about infant mortality. And in, uh, in Pakistan and India are two countries where there are a lot of children who die. One in 20 children in Pakistan dies before it reaches the age of one. One in 20. For, for, for causes that are easily preventable. Yeah, Pneumonia, for example. And uh, I don't know, I have a, a clip of video. Do we have time to watch it? Do How we, we doing? Are we doing on time? Ten minutes. Uh. Do we have a minute? And, yeah. Uh, to show you what... Oh, sorry. I'll keep talking about it. <laughs> um, this is another instance of a uh, public-private partnership. Karachi in Pakistan is probably one of the most distressed cities. It's got all of the urban problems, and it's not a place where you want to be sick. Um, We went to the public hospital, the Jinnah Hospital in Karachi, and there are stadium-sized crowds outside the building every morning, waiting in line to pick a number to see a doctor, for example. And so we we are profiling an outfit called the Child Life Foundation, which is a group of private businessmen who were literally ashamed of what they saw because they saw a report on CNN by a reporter named Sanjay Gupta, who happens to be Indian uh, in origin. And they said, we've got to do something about this. And they decided to essentially take over the pediatric emergency rooms of this hospital. And uh, they've done remarkable work in bringing down the mortality rate in these NICUs when they began six years ago, the mortality rate in these ICUs was 90 plus percent. What? In these resuscitation rooms. They've brought it down to the low teens now, Mm. but the images will give you an idea of what they are up against. So this is just a piece of video that uh, I shot with my iPhone. This is the waiting room when we actually see this on television, uh, these, these faces will be blurred. But this is what it looks like. I just walked through it. I could have done a 180 and got some more children on the other side. And uh, this is the solution that you're looking at. These are the lucky ones. These are the lucky ones. These are children who have, you know, have cannula in their their nostrils. They will, and they share a single warmer, but they are four to a cot and are able. But this is an interesting organization. They've they've put these in many hospitals now. They're using technology, and from a centralized location, supervising the care of children in many satellite locations big challenge that we face in doing these kinds of stories also is what you know what's come to be known as poverty porn pornography you know how gratuitous can you get with this um... and where does the balance lie between uh, you know preserving people's dignity and, and really respecting people and conveying the gravity of these stories but this is this is the solution to one of the worst affected uh, countries when it comes to infant mortality. So, I
2: think reporters over time and particularly people doing the work, the kind of work that you're doing and have been doing for so long. But, I mean, journalists can get cynical, get jaded. And um, I'm wondering, I mean, I guess my question is, are you cynical (laughs) or are you hopeful?
5: No, if
3: I told you I'm not cynical, I probably would sound like a bad journalist, so you're giving me a complex now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get cynical because I always meet, uh, I mean, invariably, all the time, I'm meeting people who are doing extraordinary things um, that they think is the right thing. And uh, one of the hallmarks of um, the Jim Lair news hour and we just lost the man this week last week um, is is you know he wanted us to always respect the people who came on the show people who you interview um, and and take them at face value um, or believe in their earnestness and if there was something wrong with that, that would shine through without your intervention Um, and you can take that to a flawed extent if you really you know think about that, you have to be skeptical, you have to be you know careful as a journalist but at the same time there's just no question, especially in the space that I inhabit uh, I don't, you know, I'm not stalking the halls of Congress, I'm not stalking the halls of legislatures Uh, I'm not dealing with people schooled in rhetoric and and arguments. I'm hanging out with nuns who are trying to bring kids in off the street, and I'm hanging out with doctors trying to cure the sick. And I'm in the trenches a lot more. And that makes you a lot less cynical.
2: What about the hopeful part? You said something interesting Mm. when we chatted earlier about... perhaps a looming issue that could bring people together
3: and and a generation. A few weeks ago I had an occasion to do what Canute is doing tonight in Minnesota to honor a Benedictine monk named Columbus Stewart who had been nominated to do the Jefferson Lecture, which is a big deal in Washington. Some of you might know about it that the NEH has. And at this big event, this, this is a man who's Stock and trade is digitizing ancient manuscripts to preserve them forever, and religious manuscripts from across the spectrum, across the faiths. And Benedictine monks have this tradition of being the scribes of history, and he has this uncanny knack of making things relevant, talking about making things relevant to today's life. And, And so a lot of people were very curious about you know, some of his reflections during the Jefferson lecture talking about how inequity and concerns about income inequality drove the French Revolution and the parallels with today about income inequality and, the, and a very, very, um, I mean, in a situation that compares with what happened in the House of Cluny. And one of the things that, you know, Columbus said is that there are parallels with today. But, you know, what it calls for are big leadership or big leaders to emerge, whether it's Martin Luther King during the civil rights era or big events such as war. And so the obvious question is, what do you see emerging to deal with what we are dealing with today? Because we are as polarized as ever as a society, and and he thinks that Possibly, the thing that brings us all together is climate change. Um, could we see leadership emerge that essentially builds a consensus around the reality of climate change and will be, that be the galvanizer to bring people together for a unitary effort to tackle it, much the way you know a world war effort did and so I thought that that was something hopeful and, and, and a better alternative to another war. Um, but I also hearken back to something that Archbishop Tutu said to me in 2010 during an interview, uh, reflecting on all that had happened in post-apartheid so- South Africa, a nation so, uh, he sacrificed so much to help enable, and one that has, has faltered in many ways, and, and his response is, I am a prisoner of hope. So I'm sticking to that.
2: (laughs) I think that's a great place to wrap up and a great last line. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much, Fred, for coming.
0: Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of Communiversity is Robert Berman, Centrum's executive director. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include Music from the Centrum Archives, Interviews with Teaching Artists, and Readings from the Port Townsend Writers Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.